in 300 meters. Enter the new year by taking the left at the valley. I woke up this morning Had a burning deep inside Like when you're feeling It's all a big lie I feel the pain There's hunger and despair Stop the rhetoric of your teaching Welcome to the very first episode of 2016 of Left at the Valley. My name is Kevin, I am your host, and with me as usual, my partner in crime, Nancy. How are you doing, dear? I'm doing wonderful, absolutely welcome. This is going to be a great year because it's an even year. (laughs) (laughs) I guess that's one way of looking at it. Did you have a good holiday season? I did. It was uh, filled with uh, some quiet time, some friend time, some thinking time, and of course the two little dogs time, which uh, made it a perfect rounded out holiday. Your little babies, little dogs. My little babies, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Well, I thought we'd start the year, usually shows will do a uh, look back at the year, uh, like the last show of the year, but I thought we'd actually start the year by looking back because we had so many things going on last year. And I thought today we'll do a bit of a clip show. There you go. Nothing like a good retrospective to start the journey into the future, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, like I said, I hope uh, everybody had a good time uh, during Christmas. uh, And uh, what can we say about 2015? 2015 was a year of change. Absolutely. Absolutely. There was a lot of things that happened to us in 2015. Uh, God, I mean, on every level, whether it's political, whether it's just show here, uh, in our personal lives, a a big year of change. And uh, we'll be exploring that a bit later on. I know. But then when you think about it, it, there are different changes. But do you think it was any more or less significant than years that went before? Do you think there were any precedents of change? Hmm. I I mean, I hate to... To jump on you with that question, but just as we were saying, it was a big year. Yeah, it was, and I'm trying to think of the of the answer to that. So it's sort of a rhetorical question, I guess. And, uh, that's a good question. I mean, yeah. I, I I think 2015, and time will tell if we're right about this or not. Uh, 2015 is a, is a year that seems to be setting us up for the future. Um, there's I, I I've I've seen a lot of difficult changes in the year. But uh, changes that seem to bring a lot of hope, as far as I'm concerned. And uh, we'll get into that right after I find your music. <laughs> your <segment. laughs> no, I think you're right. I think, it, like a lot of years, I think it was a year of hope, but a year of fraction, mm-hmm. uh, fractious behavior on the part of a lot of religious and, and political leaders as well. So th- this probably will be a year where we're going to see some resolutions one way or the other of, uh, is it going to be a time of hope and change or are we going to be thrown into more political uh, conflict and uh, more um, re- religious uh, disagreements that are going to end up in in, in wars. It's it really it's going to be a fascinating year to see how a lot of the things in 2015 played out. Mm-hmm. 
There you go, Nancy. All righty, here we go. Um, do a little something different on this day in history. Since it's a clip show, I'm going to pick out just a few little clips from December the 28th to January 10th. Because it was a very exciting two weeks. So, But there are three little gems that stuck out. So we'll just do them as, as clips to go along with the theme of the show. Sounds okay. good. All right. In uh, January 4th, Jam- in 1863... A guy named James Plimpton patented the first four-wheel roller skates and opened up several roller rinks. And his the reason why it's such a cute little clip is because his invention and in rink building led straight as an arrow to Vancouver, where in 2006, a lovely young lady named Michelle Lamoureux, who's also known as Mickey Mercury, founded the Terminal City Roller Girls. Oh. And that was in 2006. And this year, they're starting their 10th season. Who would have thought back then that they would be as strong as they were you know, in their in their opening years, still attracting a lot of people? I'll so admit I'm not a fan of... I've ne- I mean, I've never really followed the sport, but I've heard of people following the sport, and they're really, really enthusiastic. I know. One of the teams that they, um, they were in competition with this last year were the Bad Reputations, and they call, <laughs> <laughs> they call them the Bad Reps. <laughs> Gonna get a bad rep. <laughs> the Bad Reps, I know. I love it. Anyway, Michelle and you girls, go. Just go, girls. Go, girls. You betcha. Um, January the 4th was also the day um, day event that we started our show with last year, and that was Topsy the Elephant. That's right. Absolutely. Poor Topsy. She, she made the news in a wrong way, unfortunately, but she was a... Um, an elephant that was brought to um, brought to the United States at, at maturity, and she was a big girl. She was 10 feet high, 20 feet long, and weighed between 4 and 6 tons. And uh, she went to a circus where, unfortunately, she wasn't mistreated by the owners, but she was mistreated by some of the visitors. And um, after a while, she rebelled, and she became a rogue elephant. They just couldn't trust her because she became very wary of people mm-hmm. and actually injured um, one of the visitors who attempted to uh, light her trunk with a cigar. Oh, jeez. So, but I'm on, I'm on Topsy's side 100%. I totally agree. Absolutely. Well, that's another reason why smoking is bad for you. <laughs> exactly. In front of an elephant. <laughs> so eventually they moved her to a, um, a circus in Coney Island. And the interesting thing about that circus is it brought together a cast of characters that included George Westinghouse and Thomas Edison, along with Topsy the Elephant. So eventually, because she became a rogue elephant, they just couldn't tra- trust her with people. Mm-hmm. And so they, um, the owners of the circus decided they had to eliminate her. And then the conversation was, how do you exterminate an elephant? Yeah. So they went to the ASPCA, the um, uh, a- ASPCA, American Society of Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, and they actually recommended or endorsed hanging and drowning. So hanging it, if you can hang yeah, and how drown, do you hang an elephant? Hanging and drowning, you know, were certainly not the way to go. But because they were on Coney Island, there um, was a uh, electrical system, an alternating current 
uh, system that was invented by George Westinghouse. Mm. So they decided to electrocute poor Topsy. And they used the electric current by George Westinghouse, but there was a tower built by Thomas Edison. So everything was in play there to be able to electrocute her. And a, a crowd up to 1,500 people came to the event. Oh, it's like an old town hanging yeah. in the western towns. Um, so they let her out, fitted with copper sandals and AC lines, and they fed her some carrots that were laced with potassium cyanide, and then they electrocuted her with 6,600 volts of electricity, and mercifully and thankfully, she dropped like a stone and suffered um, no pain or, or side effects from from the, uh, there was no sounds, no struggles, and poor yeah. Topsy was... And hopefully she crushed, I guess, that tried to burn her with the cigar. <laughs> she fell yeah. down. <laughs> I, I'm hoping she <laughs> fell on him. I hope he was close enough to where she fell. That, that would have been the ultimate, the ultimate revenge. But Topsy went to wherever, you know, elephants go after after they, yeah. they die. Yeah. Yeah, I, I saw the clip. I went on YouTube and actually looked it up. You did, yeah, because it's on YouTube, and then there was also a, a book called uh, The Startling Story of the Crooked Tail Ev- uh, Elephant by Michael Daly. What did you think of the uh, the YouTube? Well, it's, it's, it's kind of grainy, and it's black and white, and um, it, it was just odd to see her just standing there, and all of a sudden, you see a bit of smoke, you don't see much detail, and all of a sudden, oh. she just topples on the side, right? Yeah. So, uh, it's, it's, you know... Of course, without the sound or being there, you can't really see the moment where the electricity is like thrown into her, and you just see her topple eventually. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's, it's still sad. It, it it is. It's it's very sad. Some people uh, thought initially that Thomas Edison was on site, but he wasn't. It's, it was his crew that that did that, if you can call it a, a, a crew. But that was one of the the basic. Um, um, starting points in filmmaking when they would go out and film some of these events. So this was made to be, you mm-hmm. know, to, to for Thomas Edison to, to show off the ability to to film these kinds of events. Anyway, poor Topsy, we'll let her go for another year. For another year, and we'll bring her. We'll bring her back. <laughs> <laughs> we'll never forget Topsy. Never forget Topsy. Um, January the sixth is our last little little gem. And the best event, the best event happened in 1918 when a Canadian captain, Captain Jay Headley um, of the Royal Flying Corps, was in a battle. He and his, his pilot, he was a gunner, and he and his um, a pilot were engaged in a battle in Germany with the German uh, Air Force. And in order to get away at a certain point in the battle, the uh, pilot went into a deep dive. Mm -hmm. Well, gunners in those days stood. And as the pilot went into the deep dive, Captain Headley lost his spot. It was jostled out of the airplane and fell out. But <laughs> the way that the air, the, the descent of, of the airplane and the speed of the airplane 
went by him as he fell out, and he reached out and grabbed the tail, climbed <laughs> up into the plane, and resumed his seat in the in the aircraft. Wow, he gets the medal for badass of the year. I'm telling you, it, I mean, it's unclear whether or not he actually grabbed the plane or the slipstream pulled him back into the plane when it leveled out. But either way, I mean, what an what an absolutely amazing story! Isn't that great? Whoa. I know. Who's the steal that man? <laughs> yeah, he retired from the Corps and capitalized being the luckiest man alive. And he actually started a second career, um, giving speeches and writing a book called "The Luckiest Man." Alive. For a second there, I thought you'd say he was a stunt pilot after that. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Speaking of stunt pilots, though, that was the same year, 198, uh, in 1939, the same day that Superman debuted. So it's there nice that Superman, the flying cape, yeah. you know, and... Was that the one with Rock Hudson? That was, <laughs> I don't know which one that yeah, was. Yeah, there's been several... Uh, yeah, incarnation I, of Superman. Of Superman. Superman. Yeah, I don't know who the first Superman was. I'm not sure either. We'll have to look it up. But now um, uh, there's a, uh, a TV channel that has all the nostalgia TV shows. Superman from the from the 50s is still really yeah. Wow. With George, what is what was his name? George. Oh. Um, I, I'll, I'll think of it halfway through when nobody cares. Yeah, probably. About, I'll call you at 2 o'clock this morning. <laughs> <laughs> Just think. George Reeves. Okay, George there we go. George Reeves was probably the, you know, the, the best-known Superman uh, in st- uh, before, um, oh, who was, I'll think of it. Or Christopher Reeves. Christopher Reeves, yeah, yeah. absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, well, of course, at my age, Christopher Reeves is, is Superman in my mind as soon as I think of him. He's the Superman. That's the one I grew up with. I know, but those those of us, you know, old codgers remember the fifties, <laughs> <laughs> and they're they're wonderful, the the old ones, because they, you know, all of the the they didn't have the the CGI's and things now that they have for yeah. effects. So you they you have to depend on the old fashioned effects, and you. You can see right through them, you know, like the, <laughs> like the old Mothra movies, the old Japanese Mothra oh, yeah. side, you know. Uh, you're opening an old can of worm with the Godzilla thing there. The Godzilla and Mothra. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, those are those are my gems, and so now we'll go on to the to the clips that uh, you particularly want to have us enjoy over again. Excellent. Through t- 2015. Thank you, Nancy, for this uh, interesting bit, as usual. And we'll be right back, right after this. Rednecks. They are the proud offspring of ignorance and misplaced pride. They stand on guard to protect the mother nation against threats like clean air, imaginary Muslim armies, and non-white people. They have suffered ridicule when they would rather buy a gun than pay the rent. They have suffered ridicule when they go out there to show Mother Nature who's boss with their trusty AR-15. They have suffered ridicule when they would rather skip school or collect welfare to lay their life on the line to overthrow a tyrannical government, a government they refuse to participate in. So here they stand, alone, in a wildlife sanctuary with only their gun dirty overalls and a camel hat.
but you can change that. For the price of a cup of coffee a day, you can provide the snacks they so crave. In their efforts to prove that Jesus and their 3030 will save them from Obama's Muslim army. Give today. See their toothless grin beam with pride. You can make a difference. Your donations can return the redneck to his favorite monster truck rally. There is hope. Call the number below and receive a free banjo. That's what Jesus would do. Call now. Thank you. Jeez. <laughs> that was just too funny. I couldn't resist that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what, what was the name? What was the name of the movie with the dueling banjos? Um, oh, the name of the movie. God, yeah. I don't know. Well, actually, it wasn't a dueling banjo. It was a guitar and a banjo. Oh, okay, that's right. But they called it the dueling banjo. Yeah, dueling banjo. thing. Anyway, so all right. <laughs> <laughs> so today, like we said, we're gonna do a show about. We're gonna do a little. Uh, we're gonna take a little trip back in time. Look at back at 2015 and all the stuff we did. For those of you other listeners that maybe didn't listen to some of the uh, shows in the past, uh, we've got some of the best moments, I guess, and some interesting moments. Oh, which is good. And we might uh, convert a lot of people into being um, dedicated listeners when they maybe. hear all the good stuff that we've been able to do this year and they can look forward to this year. We had a lot of great guests. We did. A lot of great guests. And uh, they, uh, for the, this little show, I think it was pretty surprising. And probably one of our, uh, actually our first guest of the year, we started the show with our, his rawness, Arn Raw, who uh, basically Skyped us from Texas. One of the good things, uh, one of the good people to come out of Texas. Yes. <laughs> now, Arn Raw, I, I think I'll, I'll say he's probably the hardest working man in atheism today. This guy not only travels all over the place now to do his speeches, but he also writes a different speech every time. Wow. Because most of them, they, 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 they'll do a speech, a presentation, and they'll they'll do a tour with it. But he writes a different one every time. Wow. So uh, he's pretty impressive in that sense. So we'll go with clip number one. Clip number one is actually uh, the clip of Arn when he comes on, and he explains how he became such a pain in the ass for creationists. So let's go with that. Oh. Uh, well, I, I found myself in one of those jobs where you have uh, unlimited browsing, you know, unlimited overtime at the same time. I was in this position for years where I was on uh, news groups, talk.origins, for example. And, and I, I remember just, just arguing with these people all day, every day for years on end and reading all of their citations. So I found myself on a huge learning curve, uh, more so than I ever was in college. And so, uh, I mean, I read a lot of the, uh, the, the, the old literature, the ancient mythology, the, you know, Darwin and Huxley and uh, Martin Luther and so forth. And um, I, when I eventually came out of that job, I actually went back to school for it because I I'd awakened, you know, a, an interest in all of this. And so I uh, went uh, back to school for a geoscience degree and just continued my education from there. I found in my arguments with uh, theists, with the creationists, 
that there were the same arguments that kept coming up again and again and again. So I made a series of videos, little 10-minute videos, uh, for people with short attention spans and no college education who would be able to understand the refutation for claims like that there's no beneficial mutations, that there's no transitional species, that you know that the Bible is the word of God, or that you know that that evolution is just a theory, and all of these sorts of things that I kept hearing repeated all the time, and which were completely wrong, and which I realized were as I titled it, you know, the foundational falsehoods of creationism, that creationism is actually based on a long string of false perceptions that they have to maintain. So they can't ever concede that, oh, yeah, there's plenty of transitional fossils. You know, they, they, they can't. It's Sometimes they'll concede that there might be beneficial mutations, but there's always some sort of a caveat so that they don't really make a full admission. Yeah, so that was on raw. Um... What can I say about Oren? I hope we're going to bring him again uh, this year. Uh, we were—I was fortunate enough to meet him again at uh, Imagine No Religion Five, where I actually uh, bought him some dark beer. He's a fan I, of dark beer. I know, and I, I envy you. He speaks with such confidence and clarity. You know, he just—he knows his stuff. He knows how to present it, and he has a great speaking voice. So he does. He just commands your attention. Whatever it is he's talking about, it's yeah, I can go along with that. <laughs> There's this incredible story that uh, he tells. Um, where uh, <laughs> this is this is a bit of a tangent, but it, it's it's funny nonetheless. He was uh, he was hitchhiking one day. Uh, throughout Texas, so he was going to some somewhere, right? And um, he happens to be passing close to this town and in this wooded area, and he notices that he's being tracked down by a pack of coyotes. Hmm. And Aaron, being a big guy, he looks like a big biker, and he's he's wearing this big fuzzy sweater because it's getting kind of cool at night. So, so once in a while, he would turn around and kind of roar. To, to kind of, you know, uh, make the, the, the coyotes shy. But they were getting bolder and bolder. So at some point, he's kind of fl- flagging down uh, cars. And cars are swerving <laughs> and avoiding him and driving off real fast. So eventually, he gets picked up. He goes to his destination. And, Would and, you pick up a big biker-looking guy with a pack of coyotes following him? <laughs> well, if the pack of coyotes is following you, I guess you have to do a human thing, right? Well, the funny thing is that as he's coming back... He's going through that town again. The guy who picked him up basically says, well, you got to be, I guess I should use my Texas accent. You got to be careful out there, Sonny. People that I've been reporting seeing Bigfoot in these parts lately. (laughs) (laughs) He realizes that people mistook him for Bigfoot in a wooded area with his big fuzzy sweater. (laughs) Oh, man. Oh, man. There's nothing like a good Texas story. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing like a good Texas story. Nothing like a good Texas story. Yeah. Our our other clip is a clip of... But um, we did a show in January as well. We had the first tragedy in Paris uh, about the Charlie Hebdo massacre. That's right. We're com- it, it, when, when the uh, was anniversary January. was, yeah, was yeah. last week. Yeah, exactly. We just had the anniversary of it. This is, of course, uh, where the uh, if you guys were there at the time, where the Charlie Hebdo is a, satir- a satirical magazine, not really super popular at the time, uh, but they would always use cartoons and they had no problems digging jokes at Mohammed or, or or God or anything like that. And the funny thing is, they just released, the one they just released now for the one-year anniversary, they have an image, a cartoon image of God mm. on the front page holding a uh, machine gun running away and he's covered with blood. And it says one year later, the murder suspect is still on the run. Oh. So Charlie Hebdo is not only, yeah. <laughs> they've just They're like, fearless. They're fearless, they're exactly. Fearless. And of course, some... Uh, uh, fundamentalist Islamic fundamentalist went in there and shot 
um, a bunch of them. They kill a bunch of them, and then the, the, there was a bit of a standoff. The city was under siege for for a couple of days. It was a bit of chaos. It was. Uh, at the time, we did a bonus show, and we invited our friend Jim, our friend Jim, who's also uh, kind of our Muslim expert in a way, and uh, our friend Ahmed. So I've got a clip here of Jim was explaining how fundamentalists are efficient. Yeah, Jim is a Jim is a wonderful guy who you can go to for any history of the of the Middle East. He knows his stuff, so yeah. I'm glad he could step up and 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 do that show with us. He's a regular contributor, so yeah. this is what it sounded like with Jim. And the fact that um, it takes it it only takes one lunatic to believe in these kind of things to believe that by uh, killing uh, or uh, somebody who has in, uh, who's a heretic or is a uh, apostate or somebody who is basically uh, insulting the prophet, uh, he would be going to heaven. It just takes one person to believe in that, and so that, and that's all it takes. These targets that you listed, they're already soft targets. They are not military establishments. They are not in any way protected. So it's not surprising if they, uh, these kind of uh, lone terrorist type people, uh, persons, go after these kind of targets. Yeah. So uh, that, that was essentially what we what we had there with Jim. Uh, he would pop up again in the year for other shows, especially again when Paris was attacked not too long ago. It's uh, it's good to have somebody that can bring that perspective because a lot of times we. We think in in Canada we think we know what's going on, but there are always um, important details that Jim brings that we're not aware of, and it, it helps educate us so that we can really understand the the difficulties and the complexity of the um, of, of any any negotiations or anything that that we have to keep in mind. Yeah. Towards the end of January, we also had an episode of uh, we called Dying with Dignity, which was an interview with Wanda Morris. Uh, unfortunately, I don't have an audio clip for that one, but uh, Wanda has been following with us ever since. I, I just love Wanda. She's such, she's such a she's working so hard to make sure that people have the right to uh, uh, physician assisted death. Throughout the year, uh, Dying with Dignity was not only uh, the prey, I guess, of the uh, then conservative government. Their funding and their oh, sorry, not their funding. Their charity status was pulled. Although the uh, they had it before, and then the uh, they renewed their charity status, and the government said yes. And then the government, out of the blue, on some kind of vendetta against anything that wasn't Christian, would seem anyway, uh, just went back to them and said, "No, no, we made a mistake. So we're pulling away your 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 charity status because we think you're doing too much lobbying, which is a travesty." But nonetheless, they they prevailed. And uh, today, although in, just now, just in Quebec, uh, we'll have one back soon anyway to explain more of what's going on. But we know in Quebec now, the law, I believe, is established where you can have assisted uh, su- um, assisted death. I should not call it assisted suicide. That's not the right term. My physician. Yeah, she's a very dedicated, very passionate and compassionate person and uh, she she continues working as hard as she as she did before even though she's not the head of the organization her uh that that seems to be her life her life calling for her dying with dignity is her life calling so <laughs> i don't know if you can do all that in one sentence but i just did so there <laughs> That's an interesting thing to say <laughs> after that we had a show called uh lng boone or boondoggle and um it was a show about uh, essentially uh, the liquid natural gas uh, 
uh, project that they're trying to establish here in in uh, BC. But in that show, I found a clip, which is probably one of our. Uh, it's not a clip that has to do with the uh, liquid natural gas itself, but it's a clip where our uh, my ex co-host Karen and her son Liam. Which, of course, we missed terribly at oh, the show. Yeah. Um, we were talking about Jehovah's Witnesses, and it was just it was just wonderful clip, so let's play that. Liam, uh, have you ever had this situation, this weird situation, where you get a knock at the door, and you go answer, and uh, you realize there's like two usually young people standing there, they usually have a little tie on, and they say, Hello, can we steal a moment of your time to speak to you about our Lord? Have you ever had that moment? Yes, I've had that. Yes, they're usually called Jehovah's Witnesses. Yeah. Sometimes they're Mormons. Yeah, yeah. sometimes they're well, Mormons. I've had the Mormons. Too. Well, this, this is just going to turn into the great segment that we have this weekend. Another brilliant moment brought to you by religion. Actually, you know what? I'm going to change that. How about stupid things religious people say? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got a story this, this week for you guys. Um, JW Leader, Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, they have, they sort of have a little television show here and there, and they maybe even channel it. So it's called the JW Online TV Network. And uh, one of their leader is a guy named Tony Morris. And um, he went on a scary tirade against higher secular education. Now, I really want you to talk about this, Liam, because you know what? Uh, you're a young man, although people can't see you because this is radio, you know. They know you're like six foot what? four. What? They can't see us on radio? That's right. No way. No, you did your hair for no reason. <laughs> and, you know, Liam is like six four, three hundred 300 pounds of muscle, but he's also a young man going through education right now. So uh, I really wanted him to, what he thought about the story. So anyway, this guy goes on this long, long tirade, and I've got a few quotes here really want your opinion on this. Uh, on the video at the um, 4 minutes and 30 second mark, he says, and I quote, All too often, our young people have met with spiritual disaster, especially, especially after leaving home and living in a university campus. Spiritual disaster. There's probably insurance for that. So parents and children, <laughs> you need to have a goal and you need to have a plan. If you're missing either one, Satan will provide it for you. Young people, ask yourself, why am I considering additional education? Is it because I'm pursuing a specific skill or, tire or trade to support my, ser my service to Jehovah? Or have I pr been pressured by the system? <laughs> Pure pressure. You know, yeah. The system is pressuring you to go to school right now. Into believing that higher education will somehow make it more, me more of a respected person or lead me to a better life. Okay, so everyone should be an uneducated ditch digger if you're a Jehovah Witness. Is no, that what no, he's no. saying? No, you can go to school as long as you're doing it to better serve Jehovah. Yeah, you can but dig for Jehovah. Not, <laughs> <laughs> not if the system is pressuring you to do it. Okay. Yeah, because, you know, if you go to school and says, you know what, I have been pressured to, to smoke and weed and try coke and have sex, but the pressure of higher education was really the one I couldn't resist. <laughs> I'm going to become a lawyer now. Well, yeah. I, this guy assumes that the students are starting up from a, a home that um, taught them whatever religious things. So Liam's actually safe from these kind of pressures. <laughs> well, it, it, this actually reminds me of that Fox News report where the 
the newscaster says, oh, uh, the students at our country's universities are believing what their teachers tell them. Uh, (gasps) No! (laughs) Oh, whoa. That was a fun one to watch. It's it's on YouTube. Uh, (laughs) Wow. (laughs) I keep on going. This guy gets up. Oh, no. At six six minute tens, he says, if we are in continued association with those who do not believe the same, it can erode our thinking and conviction. This is the way of basically saying don't associate with people that think. You know, if, if one thing, well, it is see, one thing to work on a job with others, it's quite another matter to immerse your, oneself in an institution of learning. Ooh. Wow. See, see, to me, this is silly because if. No, really? No, but <laughs> if, if whatever you believe is the truth, it shouldn't matter how much new information you get. Exactly. It will continue to reinforce your belief, right? Exactly. Because if you actually believe what's out there, then every bit of data that you get will, you know, just promote what you already believe. Uh, you haven't spoken to Father <laughs> Vern, which actually we have a segment on Father Vern coming up. That will be funny, actually. But but, but if it, if you believe something that's wrong, then the more you learn, the more ridiculous it seems. Yes, and so that's that. Th- them saying that almost is, is like putting up a sign that says, "Actually, I'm not telling the truth." Because yeah. if if Jehovah's Witnesses were right, then he would say, oh, go get your higher education. Yeah. And it won't matter because you'll come back believing more in what you Yeah, before, exactly. Right? You'll just get reinforcement that everything I've said is right. Well, hold you... on. Speaking of that, let me segue into this. <laughs> At 944, he says, I have long said, the better the university, the greater the danger. <laughs> the oh most, my God. The most intelligent and eloquent professors will be trying to reshape the thinking of your child. And their influence can be tremendous. One mom, I recall, asked me to try to help her son who was attending the prestigious name university at Rhode Island. After visiting him, I later had to inform her that her son now believes in evolution. (gasps) She refused to believe it until he finally told her himself. How sad. (laughs) Hmm. And then he went on to give several anecdotes old stories anyway of families broken families completely broken by kids pursuing secular education <laughs> and discontinuing their service to Jehovah that's so sad oh jeez <laughs> that wasn't true I hope it was not too distorted well you know, one, of, one of the things about that segment that that reinforces my belief that the future has a chance it, it, is listening to Liam he's such a a bright young guy, and yes. a, and with with all the intelligence, there's great critical thinking that's there. He just doesn't absorb facts and give them back to you. He analyzes mm-hmm. them. So, and what he says there on that, he makes a, that an extremely good point. He says, you know, if you have the truth, if the Jehovah's Witnesses or any any faith was to actually have the truth, they would be the ones saying, go right ahead. Go exactly. get an education. It will just reinforce everything we've said because we have the truth. And the fact that these people are already saying, no, don't attend college. They're just going to brainwash you, blah, 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 just proves the point. Either either way, I think good parenting is we have the truth, you know, reinforce it by higher education, or we really don't know. So do everything you can to find out and then do your best to, to find solutions or find your way in the world. Mm-hmm. So e- either either way, it, it works out. Yeah. In that same show, we later had an interview with Damien Gillis. Damien Gillis is the... Uh editor he's a filmmaker he's also the editor of the common sense canadian which has become a bit of a resource for us and uh, he wanted to talk about uh, the uh, liquid natural gas he's been following that very closely uh, so the clip this uh, following clip is actually a clip about him coming to explain that uh, 
liquid natural gas wasn't all what it was all cracked up to be. I understand the role that these resources have played in our economy and in my own family's lives, but I also uh, recognize that how we manage these resources and particularly our environment is is of paramount importance uh, looking forward. And I think we need to be developing uh, sustainable economic opportunities for our future. There are a lot of big overarching issues like climate change and ecological issues that really should compel us to, to rethink some of these uh, traditional sectors. And per- particularly what I'm interested in is getting the best value for taxpayers with our public policy. I, I, I am very concerned that too often we give away uh, our raw resources without adding value, without creating local jobs and uh, economic benefits for British Columbians. And so when you look at industries like LNG, uh, like uh, exporting of raw logs and uh, various other practices in terms of our resource economy, that's what we're trying to do with the Common Sense Canadian is to open up a really a frank dialogue about how we can do better in these areas. My colleague, Rafe Mayer, is a former SOCRED cabinet minister. Uh, I think he embodies a lot of the values that that I have. It's why he's become a a mentor and friend and colleague to me, is that even though we're almost 50 years apart, I think we share a common concern for these things and, you know, maybe have certain conservative values, but at the same time, uh, really value our environment in this, uh, what makes us, this place, Supernatural BC, so special to live in and really makes it uh, the kind of place that people want to come from all around the world to see. And we often forget that the tourism economy and these things like our wild salmon and our, our, our rivers and forests, et cetera, are the most important part of our economy, that $14 billion tourism economy that we have here. And this is all really up in the air right now. Yeah, that was Damien Gillis. Um, of course, interesting to see that uh, almost a year after that, the liquid natural gas dream of BC is just about dead, really. Yeah. I read an interesting, I'm going to butcher this quote, but um, relevant to the economy and and natural resources i think the the quote i read this this last week was only when the um the last um important species die and the rivers the the, the rivers the rivers yeah, when, die when the last out, out, tree has been cut down, cut down will people realize they can't live on money they can't eat money can't eat money yeah, there right. you go it's, Thank a, it's, you. A, it's a very good quote <laughs> yeah yeah i saw that and i thought oh man that's that says it and then i butchered it thank you for coming in and saving it <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, I, I forget who said that i think it was chief pontiac it, it it was it was one Some, of the like aboriginal yeah yeah one of the you know once once the uh, it goes uh, yeah once the last bird is killed and the last uh, river is polluted or something like that and then we'll real and the last tree is cut down right. we'll realize we cannot eat money there you go and yeah. uh, it's it's a very good bit of wisdom I know and and some of the uh, the walls of these corporations that deal in in, that, in um, uh, fossil fuels they ought to put that up on the on the wall of course they'll 
probably turn it face facing the wall because they don't a lot of them don't pay any attention but that is it's it, it, I, i'm hoping that's not going to be a prof you know prophetic quote but it looks like it might be let's hope not let's hope not let's yeah. hope we'll get something better than that uh, after that we actually did a show called women in science remember we that show? Did. I we do. did and I did. Uh, part of that show of course we did explore uh, women that you don't quite know about but that given great contribution to science. We had like a top 10 list. Uh, but we also had an interview with Rachel Nanon Brown. Rachel Nanon Brown, which actually was, uh, she's a paleontologist, and she was also part of the uh, team on Dogma Debate, uh, Dogma Debate with David Smalley. Uh, she's moved on from that now, and now she also does a science segment on Atheist on Air. So here's a clip of what it sounded like interviewing Rachel Nanon Brown. You know what? Fossils are awesome. You guys are on the forefront. I mean, you deal with people that deny evolution. You work in the field and everything. So tell me, what, what do you think this, what's the status of the whole science, of science in general in the U.S.? What do you figure? Okay. Um, what's well, kind of complicated in that well, each we of can the handle states complicated. Kind, yeah, it just take a while. Because um, Texas is, is one of the worst. And I, I live in Texas um, because we, we were one of the main distributors and, I guess, um, I don't know if we're the main writers, but we're the ones that kind of uh, manufacture and, and approve and, and distribute science textbooks. So what Texas makes and approves is kind of what the country is. Um, so we have a lot of control. And what happens here is, is very scary because in, the, in recent years we've had a lot of um, – I guess very, very religious people that are either proponents for intelligent design, which is religion's way of trying to pretend they're science, um, or they're just straight up creationists. They're getting elected onto the board. And um, they either flat out say, like, evolution needs to be removed, we need to put creationism in there, or they say, we need to teach the controversy. And they try to put evolution and intelligent design on equal ground. And that sadly works really, really well because it they've, they've masked their campaign to put intelligent design with you need to make sure that all all theories and all sides are have equal time, which sounds great. Sounds like a great idea. Everyone should have equal equal time. Show you know both sides of it, and um like you, and they have they would put stickers on like science textbooks that say this textbook discusses, you know, the theories of evolution, you must, you know, approach this with a, like a critical mind and blah, 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 blah. And they would do all these little sneaky things that you're like, okay, that's, that's fine. That's fine, whatever. But what they're doing is that you shouldn't have to have a sticker saying that you have to use your critical mind and weigh the other options only with evolution. When they, they don't do that with any other subject, in biology, they didn't do it in physics, chemistry. They just were like, evolution needs to be approached carefully. And they put the stickers on, and we freaked out. Um, but the the main issue is that... Hold on here a second. You're saying, you're saying that they're putting stickers on school books saying that, mm -hmm. warning, this is evolution? Yeah, it was pretty much... I, I hopefully they don't... I don't know if they're allowed to do it anymore, but I know that it wasn't that long ago that they passed that, but they, they literally that. put a sticker. They put stickers on a version of, of science textbooks that were being distributed in high schools. Only in the that, U.S., right? 
Yeah, so that was uh, Rachel Nanum Brown uh, doing the speaking about the controversies in Texas. And uh, for for those Canadians uh, that might not understand that, Texas being a big state, when they pass um, a standard they're going to use for their, their textbooks, and since they have so much purchasing power, a lot of the uh, other states around them follow suit. Absolutely, because then they can just print one version of a book and exactly. sell it. You know, in, instead of having a, a Texas um, version and a New Jersey version and an Arizona yeah. version. So uh, so when Texas comes in and says, you know what, uh, evolution is a lie, and uh, we should really put in the book that uh, Genesis is the way the earth was created, well then, it's not only the Texan kids that are learning this, it's also the Tennessee kids and the Mississippi kids and the... Uh, and that is why it's become such a controversy down there in the States. It is, and it's been that way for, for quite a while. It used to be worse. Um, there used to be a, a stranglehold on the, um, um, I, I don't know what the, the committee, like the committee that approved textbooks. It used to be one family that had um, really? absolute, complete sway over what was going to be in the in the science and the history books and, and the um the sociology, social studies books, those are the three areas where uh, religion and politics uh, comes in the most. And um, there was a family, um, I think in the Austin area, and they reviewed the books. This is back in the 50s and the 60s. It's widened now, and at least there are more watchdogs that will uh, will um, but make still. sure. But this, there's a lot that, that goes through. Oh, yeah. And um, I, in some states... Um, uh, I, I think there are some school districts that have actually torn out parts of the, uh, either evolution texts or science texts that they don't agree with. Absolutely so they amazing. they pull the, the pages out and they don't don't allow them in the in the library. Uh, absolutely amazing to me. Yeah, but just stupid that. because you can download <laughs> the kids can go home and exactly. download them, which is something that that they're doing. So people can get an education despite the the uh, the forces that that don't want them to 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 know about science based education. I guess also the the, the issue might arise that the kids have to be aware that this, this part is missing too, right? So. Well, the parents do. The kids are not so much, but the, the parents do yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, After that, uh, we had a show called Help Me, I'm a Slacktivist. Yeah. Uh, that was a show that uh, Karen wanted to do uh, at the time because uh, Karen had a bit of pet peeves about people going on Facebook, for example, and signing a petition. And there's a lot of petitions going around. Um, it, t- it actually became one of our uh, most popular shows. And uh, here I have a clip of Karen explaining how she found out that petitions, uh, most petitions, actually don't work. This is kind of a pet peeve of mine. So, <laughs> but I, by slacktivism, I mean people who go on Facebook and they click like because you know there's a picture. If you click like, if this girl gets a hundred thousand likes, then she'll get whatever surgery she needs to save her or whatever. I'm sorry, but that's not going to happen. Clicking like shows that you like something to the circle of friends that you have and that is all it does it does not cause change in any way shape or form are you telling me if i click like on facebook the world does not change that's correct oh i know i know all this time another thing that really bothers me online petitions in canada there is absolutely no 
legislation, no bills, no laws that require any government to accept online petitions. I shouldn't say any government. There might be a provincial government that does that, but not in BC and not federally. So you can sign 100,000 online petitions and you have done nothing. The government is not in any way obligated to look at those petitions. So you're far better off. Well, we'll get into that, but you're far better off to write a letter. You're even far better off to sign an online form letter because those do go to the MPs and the MLAs. They do look at them. Some of them probably take them more into account than others, but a petition is a guaranteed no-go. If you sign a petition for a company, like say you want, I don't know, McCain's to not employ slaves, I'm making this up obviously, then you can send a you can do that. You can send a petition to a company. They're probably far more likely to listen to you because they are trying to sell you a product and they know if a lot of people are angry at them that they're not going to sell product. They're quite sensitive about these things too. So that's fine. If you're sending it to a company that you might get a good success rate, but a government in Canada guaranteed not. The United States government looks at them if they get a huge number or something like 100,000 signatures online, but there's no obligation for them to do anything. There's only an obligation that they'll look at it, they'll read it, they're done. So, you know, there's far better ways to get involved. Yeah, so that was a clip with Karen and, uh, like I said, one of our most popular shows. And a lot of very good information in that show. Absolutely. But that's that's true. I mean, people um, who are very busy, um, it, it makes them feel good to get on a website and say, oh, yeah, I belong to such and such forum, uh, or and I can... You know, click like in my spare time at two o'clock in the morning. If I have, if I'm wide awake and I really need to go, I can go to my form, push like, and I feel as though I've done something positive for a cause I believe in. And that's what it is. It's a feel good. I mean, I'm sure. It totally there are, is. Yeah, I'm sure there are people whose level of awareness does increase, so they can get out and be activists. But I, I think, what do you think the ratio is of slacktivism to activism? Do you think there are nine slacktivists to every activist? Oh, or? I would. Yeah, I would you say think? that. <laughs> I would totally say that. <laughs> uh, I, I think a lot of people, uh, especially here in BC, uh, of course, uh, like I, I said in a previous show, I grew up in Quebec, where I think people are way more activists than they are here in BC, which is surprising because you would think the other way around here in BC, you know, they get the reputation of Greenpeace and all that stuff. Yeah. But I think um, I see a lot of people here, they'll say, oh yeah, you know, we totally agree with you, Kev. You you stand up and, you know, we'll, we're right behind you. And if you do stand up, you realize you stand up by yourself. Yeah, don't turn around. <laughs> don't turn around. <laughs> don't turn around unless you want a real dose of reality. Yeah. But there, there are people that'll send you an email saying, great job, Kevin. And we're proud of yeah, you. Yeah, we're great proud job. of you. Oh, good. Where were you this whole time? Oh, well, uh, That's right. (laughs) I mean, it's not that you don't like the support because everybody does. You want to know that people are cheering you on, and that uh, you know if you if you if you want a a fan group that you've got one. But it's when you really have a cause that could use a lot of people, and you turn to your your fan group and you say, "Hey, John. Hey, Bill. Hey, Mary. uh, We're having a rally this week, or we're doing a letter writing campaign. You want to join us?" Boy, does it get quiet. <laughs> but, you know, there's there's such joy in, in seeing good things happen when you actively work 
you know, to make them come about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wish we could do something to to encourage slacktivists to become activists just part of the time. Don't switch 100%. You might hurt yourself. But, you know, just slowly take part in, in something yeah. where you know you have actively made a, a difference, you know, if in, not for in you, helping at the least world become a better place. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. The next show we had after that was the uh, top 10 reasons that you don't understand evolution. Now, I didn't, couldn't point anything extraordinary in that show, but there was this one moment, and it's probably one of my favorite moments, was actually, um, I think, in my opinion, the best This Day in History clip. Oh. And it's one of the stories we laugh so hard, and let's play that. <laughs> Moving on to March 13th, it's K-9 Veterans Day. And here, this is a wonderful story. You, you will love this story. Picture this, 1915. Wilbert Robinson is a 52-year-old manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers. And the Brooklyn Dodgers were playing a, a team exhibition game in Florida and the manager Wilbert agreed to catch a baseball from a low flying airplane this is 1915 <laughs> so some of these fixed wings jobs right well you know baseball is so boring to begin with I can <laughs> see why they do that you need to space right. it up so so none of the players would accept the challenge <laughs> who knew right? So he decided, you know, it was his idea. He's he's the one that has to follow through. So the team's in Daytona Beach and for spring training. And as it turned out, there was a female aviatrix named Ruth Law who was also in Daytona Beach dropping golf balls from her plane as a publicity gimmick for a local golf course. This is like, oh, this gets better How and many people died? <laughs> <laughs> I know. And Ruth Law, you, you've got to look her up on Google. She flew with the Wright brothers. I mean, this woman did loop the loop. She was unstoppable. Wow. She was a great character. So they got Ruth, and of course, if it's a gimmick, you know, and she's a woman pilot, she's going to say, yeah, I'll do it. So the, Do- the Dodgers recruited her to help execute the ball drop, but as fate would have it, Either she wasn't given the baseball or they told her something else, but she did not have the baseball in the plane. But (laughs) she did have a grapefruit in her lunch. (laughs) (laughs) See, this this is the kind of history you should learn in history class. I know. So she's flying low, and she reaches into the bag and gets her grapefruit and tosses out the window where she sees that Wilbert Robinson is standing there ready for the big catch. (laughs) So he's all prepared to catch it, and he misses, and the grapefruit strikes him in the chest and explodes. (laughs) And he he falls to the ground thinking he's mortally wounded because this grapefruit, which is like a ruby red grapefruit... (laughs) (laughs) breaks 
funny. <laughs> <laughs> he got his heart exploded <laughs> or something. And he feels it, and all he feels is his pulp, and he thinks <laughs> he thinks his chest is exploded. Oh my, god. oh my god! And he looks around and he thinks his teammates are going to be running to get the ambulance, and they're all standing there laughing. <laughs> and so he can't say, "What the heck is going on?" <laughs> So finally he looks down and he realizes, oh wait, this isn't me, it's a grapefruit. <laughs> so needless to say, the team was not very happy with him for the rest. He, he made their life miserable for the rest of that game. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was a good clip. <laughs> it was. I mean, you can just see, you can visually just see this thing like a film unfolding in front of your your eyes. It's just, oh, gosh. I think the funniest stories we had all year were baseball stories. I know. They? What is it about baseball? You know? I don't know. The I season ends and there goes humor. <laughs> I can't stand watching the thing, but goodness gracious, they had some great stories. I know. And, uh, of course, Karen at the time, uh, our ex-co-host Karen, was just, she just lost it. She was just laughing at it off. <laughs> well, we all did. It was we tough, all did. tough to get through because it was just, it was, it was just completely slapstick funny. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> you would have told me that story was that you're making this up. There's no way in hell this is this happened for real. But no, hey, and it's know. coming up again, March 13th. Exactly. <laughs> uh, show after that we had was, uh, we were interviewing uh, How to Be a Real Good Pain in the Ass with Christopher DiCarlo. Uh, yeah. Christopher DiCarlo is uh, a professor out of Ontario, and I would call him probably one of the bravest men in atheism today. This is a guy who actually was uh, offered tenure twice in a university, and twice it was withdrawn because when he, go he goes to the students and makes them do critical thinking, mm. you know, uh, and he does challenge religion. He shows up at every imaginable religion. He's a swell guy. And he tells me these horror stories about how his wife was just about driven off the road in her minivan because he's got a flying spaghetti monster mm. uh, on the back of the minivan. You know, this is in Ontario. I would have thought, you know, you, you told me this story in Texas, I would believe you. In Ontario, my jaw just dropped. I said, really? And he said, yeah, absolutely. And on several occasions. Canadians are not like that. Exactly. <laughs> it's 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 just it, it, we're, we're we're it's not in our DNA. We're constitutionally not not equipped to yeah. be that way. It's it's what's so shocking about it. Yeah. So here's a clip of Christopher DiCarlo who explains the problem with those trying to debate today. In your opinion, what do you think are the most common mistakes people make in debates? Well, when having intelligent discussions, uh, oftentimes people um, will conflate ideology. They'll conflate factors so what i see on the news and what you even see on on uh you know cnn and, and right to the springer show is i see people conflating uh or equivocating ideas that should be kept separate or should be understood to be kept separate and one of these is the distinction between you know facts and values what's sometimes referred to as the naturalistic fallacy but the idea that a lot of people say just because you state a fact doesn't necessarily mean you hold a value to that particular fact. And so, you know, one of the obvious things would be, say, you know, the Ferguson, Missouri, you know, the, the shootings or the various types of shootings. Uh, if you were to mention a fact as to what you believe happened and it, it ran in, in opposite views of what people thought uh, was a more of a racial 
issue, you could be called out as being a racist, mm. even mm. if what you understand, well, were the facts X? If the facts were X, was the cop acting in self-defense? And immediately, if you if you say if those were the facts, well, you're a racist then. And what bothers me is people sometimes jump too quickly to the value side of an argument before getting all the facts straight, right? And so that seems to me, in the world, people tend to go from that descriptive side of things where the facts are over to the prescriptive value-laden side, right? Okay. And that, that's what I tend to see a lot happening now, especially in the U.S. Yeah, great guy, Christopher DiCarlo, and uh, we'll see him again in Imaginal Religion 6 this year, and I look forward to hearing from him again. You know who he reminds me of? You know who I, I would picture him, you know, like as a team, him as a teammate, Peter Bogosian. Oh, yes, they're, totally. Don't you see them? They're, they're, him and Peter, you know, they would make a great team, I think. They would make a great team. They Well, I don't know. They, they, they think very much alike. I don't think you, you know, there's not a whole lot of difference, but I'm saying they, they really think very much alike. They're very clear and concise, mm-hmm. you know, in in determining and helping people be critical thinkers and and does DiCarlo have a class in critical thinking because I know Peter does. Uh, that's a good question. I yeah. I don't know. I don't remember. Um, I guess we, we'll probably have to ask him when he comes back on the show because yeah. we will have him back for sure. But both really really nice guys. Oh and, yeah, and absolutely. Just you know like just straight as an arrow into uh, what what type of thinking you know is is good for progress and what type of thinking slows you down and blocks uh, real communication. Yeah. They're just B- both these men are highly intellectual and they're facing. They're challenged on a regular basis by people with emotional arguments. Absolutely. And, you know, that's that's where, you know, when you have a debate, you really need to leave the emotions at the door. Yeah. The next show we had after that, we had a show called Speaking Your Mind with David Fitzgerald. Now, I love David Fitzgerald. I think he's a great, great guy. He's a, he's a fairly regular guy, and uh, he's uh, a mythicist. He also believes that Jesus did not exist. And if for somebody like me, who's not all that smart, uh, before you hit something like Richard Carrier, who's like <laughs> this genius, and you know when you read his book, it's got like it's a it's got like a thousand pages and it's huge. It might be a bit intimidating, but if you grab David Fitzgerald's book, which is a much smaller book, and it's the the layman's version, you know, the condensed in, or maybe the introduction to, before you move on to Richard Carrier. And I think uh, his book, when I read his book, uh, I couldn't put it down. I just had to finish it as quickly as possible. And, you know, for most books, that doesn't really happen to me. <laughs> so I was really taken by it. So here's a clip of David Fitzgerald who explains why he thinks that Jesus was a myth. Well, whatever you say about what Jesus did or said or taught or was, you have to ask yourself, what's our sources for that? And it turns out that no matter what you say about Jesus, all our sources boil down to the same thing. And ultimately, it boils down to that one book of Mark's. It doesn't boil down to the New Testament epistles. It doesn't boil down to what Paul said because he says almost nothing about the real, quote, historical Jesus. It, we all get our biographical information from the same place that Matthew and Luke and John did from the Gospel of Mark. And that seems to be an allegory from start to finish. And in the new book, that's what I explore and point out that every single thing that we have from birth to death in that gospel is an allegory. Okay, I find that interesting. So, so let's say, for example, that let's say, for example, that there was a charismatic rabbi, and his in his supposed life, what what struck you as this has to be a myth? You know, in his in the story of Mark. 
Right. And again, there's nothing unrealistic about that. But there's a paradox behind this that I talk about in Nailed. I said, either this guy taught all these amazing things, if not did all these amazing miracles and healings and whatnot, and yet no one noticed outside his little fringe cult for almost 100 years, or he didn't do these things, he didn't teach these things, and yet as soon as he's dead, we have all these feuding little fringe cultlets, not in Jerusalem, not in Judea, but scattered all over the Roman Empire that can't seem to agree about the first thing about his life, his career, who he hung out with, who his family was, anything about his life. That paradox alone, that was a huge red flag for me that something has gone wrong here. Yeah, and I'll totally agree with that. Uh, David Fitzgerald had a huge impact on me. Uh, I mean, his... his uh... His logic is pretty much flawless in that sense. Mark is the basis for the gospel. And in the story of Mark, uh, the gospel, uh, according to Mark, starts with a Jesus grown up. There's no nativity in the, the gospel of Mark, you know. He's already grown up. So it, it leads you to a whole bunch of interesting questions. You know, and the, the, the silence of history towards Jesus Christ. You know, like he, he points out later on in the interview, he says, you, you've got some lesser rabbis at the time. You know, that had their, their little cult following too, and they left a footprint in history. Why is it that Jesus, the most charismatic figure of all time, mm-hmm. apparently didn't? I know the thing, the thing I like about David Fitzgerald is that he makes dynamic arguments that you can get into. The, the academia is there, but the, the liveliness of, of the way he speaks and the way he presents it grabs you so that you begin, the, the wheels begin turning. You know, and it it hits you at an emotional level. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and and then you can you can relate to what what he's uh, what he's saying. Yes. And then, as you say, you can move on to to the the more um, academic scholarly scholarly yeah, works. Then you can the, hit something like Robert Price or Richard. Yeah. Carey. One thing going back to what we were talking about initially about 2015 about mm. you know things for for bad or good or or whether they were different. Uh, as I was listening, re-listening. Um, to Fitzgerald say that um, since the time that we had Richard Carrier here uh, with his debate on the historicity of Jesus, and then you're having David Fitzgerald on, it seems to me that in 2015 there were more books yes. about the the mythicism than there have been lately. And I wonder whether or not the preponderance of evidence or lack of evidence and the number of writers who are now exploring mm-hmm. uh, Jesus, I wonder whether or not that's going to make any fundamental differences. Not with the hard, you know, right fundamental Christians, but I really wonder whether that's going to make a, a, a difference in the, in the years to come. Well, I uh... I can't point to 2015 exactly, but the the last couple of years with guys like Fitzgerald and Carrier and Robert Price and all that, they're the guys that have dropped the pebble in the pond. Exactly. Um, because, of course, the vast majority of scholars still think that there was a, a figure, a, a Jesus figure. Uh, but when you start looking at where did their funding come from, and you realize that these people are funded by churches and they're funded by universities, religious universities, and it's written in their in, in their uh, in their statement that they have to, they have to believe it, they have to find evidence for it, and otherwise they, they lose their funding, they lose their position. So, I think there's a much greater number of uh, scholars that will admit into the future. Soon we'll find out uh, that uh, no, they they really start thinking that 
the whole Jesus thing was allegory more than anything else. Yeah, I mean, you can't, you can't, it's not like Christianity is going to collapse and TWU is going to close their doors anytime soon, but it does start some rational scientific thinking, mm-hmm. um, which is to say that's, that's the pebble and the ripples, the yes. ripples will continue to, to be widened. Although I'll say, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, side with Lawrence Krauss on that side, uh, that say uh, Christianity is going to, the collapse of Christianity is going to happen a lot faster than we think. I think it's a, it's not a slow movement. It's just it, it accelerates exponentially. I mean, right now the all the churches are bleeding uh, followers, and they're doing all their best to retain them, and they're getting sneakier and sneakier. But you know what? I, with the advance of education, it's a losing battle, and I think they know it. Yeah, I think in your not in my lifetime, but in yours for sure. Yeah, you'll be around we'll for a see. while. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I know uh, next week for sure because I've, <laughs> I've got I've got the show written for now. I've got a show plan for my segment plan for next week, so I'm in. <laughs> okay. <laughs> our, our next show after that we had uh, it's Mother's Day and I survived stomach cancer. Well, we actually That's met right. Tanya. That's right. And John. Uh, John is a. They were lo- great guests. Weren't yes, they, they, they were. were great guests. And uh, John is a, a local artist, and he uh, he plays uh, mostly folk style music. And uh, Tanya happens to to be his uh, fiance, and uh, I'm not sure if they're married yet. Uh, and uh, she uh, she's uh, my age. She's not very old, and she uh, was diagnosed with stomach cancer, and she had a very courageous story. So here's a clip of Tanya. Uh, essentially, um, where is it? She quickly explains her finding out that she had stomach cancer. So back in January of last year, I, you know, I'll back it up a little bit. I've always been a bit of a health nut going to the gym. I don't smoke. I don't drink. I would have like the odd glass of wine, um, really took good care of my body. Never thought that I would be going through something like this. Um, but anyways, I was experiencing some some discomfort kind of felt like I was full all the time I'd wake up in the morning felt like I had eaten a whole big meal which I hadn't I had some um I had some acid secretions and just lots of burping and stuff like that and I knew that something was wrong so of course I went to the doctor and doctor prescribes me a little pill sends me on my way of course the little pill didn't work went back again and at that point he decided to test me for um, a bacteria called the H. pylori bacteria which I did test positive for. So protocol for that is to take um, a series of antibiotics that are very strong. I reacted to those antibiotics, so I wasn't able to take them. Doctor sent me to a gastroenterologist. He says, oh, I'll send you to the expert. He'll know what to do. So I went to see the expert who decided to scope me, um, you know, th- look, have a look down in my stomach. Um, and it was I was very lucky because at that moment he found a very small area on the top of my stomach that looked suspicious. So he took a biopsy, sent it off. And June 18th, when I was sitting teaching my, um, I was teaching carrieds at the time at a private college in Abbotsford, phone went off. It was the gastroenterologist. You need to come in immediately. Of course, I panicked. I was very, very scared. I went in that day, and that's when um, the doctor looked at me across his big desk and said, you have stomach cancer. So your symptoms, before you got in there, before you actually went to see the first, because, you know, the way, uh, so you said you were burping a lot, Mm -hmm. and you felt always full. Did you have a lot of acid reflux? Yes. Wow. Yeah. Was it a, uh, did you pin down to when it was a specific food you were eating or was it just like all the time? It was all the time. Was it affecting you while sitting up or lying down? Both. Really? Yeah. 
it was very noticeable. It was something that was out of the norm for me. Because prior to that, the only time I would have acid reflux is if I was pregnant. And I knew very well that I was not pregnant. <laughs> mm. So, yeah, it was very different. Very interesting. Yeah. So a simple visit because of what you probably thought was acid reflux. Yeah. Turned to something much more scary. Yeah. Yeah, so there there she was. She was a sweetheart, and we just oh, loved her. Oh, she was. And, uh, and a courageous sweetheart. Yes. Well, uh, news on her, uh, you'll know that uh, she has uh, completely gotten out of it. The doctors, she's completely cancer-free, and uh, her hair is growing back. <laughs> yeah. And uh, she's uh, living life, and uh, her and John are set to get married at some point. And she's uh, today, uh, she was, uh, I think, December or November or December was actually Stomach uh, Cancer Awareness Month. Yeah. And uh, so, so she's becoming a bit of an advocate for that. Oh, you can you can just hear the um, the, the joy of living in her voice. Yes. You know she she tells her she tells her story in a very straightforward. Don't pity me. I'm not a victim, but I'm going to survive, and so can you. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, she she's really a wonder. I hope we can have her back um, for another show sometime to catch us up on the medical system or the other things that now she's going through as an advocate. It'd be great to have her back. Actually, if we're player cards right, she she's almost willing to join the crew here at Left in the Valley and become a permanent fixture. So, oh, fantastic! We'll, we'll keep in touch with that and see if we can have uh, Tanya come in uh, and later on in other shows. Oh, it'd be great! The listeners, the listeners will just love hearing her. Absolutely. Yeah. Regardless of her topic, she she knows how to cover a topic in an informative and entertaining way as well. And, and she's yeah. a she's a nurse too, right? So it's always good to have somebody who knows Absolutely. a bit of the medical side of things. Absolutely. Um, after that, we had a show called uh, Firebrand versus Diplomat, where we had a debate as to which word were you? Were you a firebrand or you a diplomat? And how do you see yourself? But we also managed in that show to catch up with Hamid Mehta, who's the friendly atheist who also writes a, the uh, Patheos blog and uh, who does great things for the, for the, for the atheist movement altogether. Um, and at this point, we, uh, we caught up with him and we were asked uh, about the difficulty that atheist students face, which is a bit of a pet peeve of him, of his, and uh, what he does to help him. So let's see what that sounds like. What is your feeling with the teachers and principals who are, who are sort of telling these kids to be quiet and saying you shouldn't be an atheist. Do you think yeah. they are doing that a lot out of fear of for their own religion or just out of ignorance about how alienating it is for students? Almost always ignorance. I mean, I, it's very hard to meet a principal or a teacher who doesn't have the best interest of the kids at heart. I will give them that. Um, but if they hear, I mean, they either think this kid's headed down the wrong path and they want to stop it because they don't know any better because they were raised in the same bubble too. Or they are just fully ignorant of the law. And they, like, if a kid wants to start an atheist club, they'll just, like, oh, you should come. Uh, if you can't find a faculty sponsor, you can't have it. And it's hard to find a faculty sponsor because mm-hmm. um, who are you going to ask? But that's illegal. Like, they can't do that. But they've never experienced this before. This is not something they're taught as they're going through their schooling yes. and stuff. So um, a lot of times it's ignorance. But uh, you would hope that when someone sends them a letter and says, hey, you stopped this kid from doing it, it's wrong allow it to happen, you would hope they stop with the resistance. And what we find is a lot of times they just keep up the resistance because they think, who are these people that tell me I'm wrong? Mm -hmm. And, you know, and there are Christian legal groups that are like, yes, you're totally right. It's like, no, you're wrong about the what? You lose all of these cases when you keep saying this. Um, So, I mean, there is, it's crazy. I think most principals, teachers are on the right track 
most of them are going to do the right thing. Some of them are ignorant, but if they learn the issue. But you know what? The more we see these things coming up, the more we see these students trying to form groups and getting shut down, it becomes a media story. And hopefully they'll see it and be like, oh, well, now I know how to handle it at my school. Yeah, so there it was. Uh, of course, he's talking about the many, many legal battles they have in the States about the uh, state versus religion. Uh, not so common up here, although we no. are seeing things like the Trinity Western University that is trying to do these kind of things. So Yeah, but he's the kind of guy you want on your side oh, because totally. he's so well-spoken, he's intelligent, he's very diplomatic, but at the same time, he doesn't give an inch. You oh, know? Yeah. He, yeah, exactly. He, he, he's not someone who will compromise his principles, but uh, I, I would imagine... You know the kids who had him as a as a teacher really benefited from him. He he's just a uh, a, a great speaker and a nice person to to he, stand and talk to too. Wasn't he disarms he? you with a smile. Yeah, that's what he does. I mean, he he's, he's non threatening. He's very friendly, and you talk to him, and then you realize all of a sudden you've. If you were to argue against them, you realize that you've caved to all these points all of a sudden. You know? Yeah, but he is. He's very easygoing. I didn't have a chance to talk with him in depth the way you did, but I, I could, when we were there um, um, at the, the uh, BC, BC Humanist, Humanist yes. uh, talk, um, I had a, a chance just to observe him as a, as a person. And boy, does he ever come across as Mr. Likeable and Sincere. Yes. And it's not a phony likable and sincere. Exactly. That's the way he is. He, he, ca- he came out of Jainism. Yeah, he did. So that's, that's interesting, too, because I had never met a Jane before. No, I never, so, never Or somebody who came out of Jainism. Yeah. Um, after the uh, Hemet Metha interview and all that, we also had a uh, imaginal religion. So here, uh, for people that maybe weren't there, I've got this little clip of a little, nice little moment that happened in Imaginal Religion 5. I would recommend anyone to go to these. Oh, it's absolutely. so worth it. Absolutely. You learned so much. It was a fantastic conference. Um I, I've got a nice little moment there. Um, Karen and, and, and uh, Liam were with us, and they're not as into... For me, well, if it was all like, I like to shake his hand. Yeah, right? I yeah mean, we Like do. I said, Dawkins is 74. It's probably the only time I'll ever get to see him, ever. Yeah. So I say I could say, you know, I shook the guy's hand. Uh, and I did. Uh, Liam and Karen, not too much into that. And Liam a bit shy about it. Towards the end, I know, for that one moment where Dawkins was kind of like by himself there for, for, for a few seconds... Um, I went to him and I said, thank you, Professor. Thank you for inspiring that young man over there. And he turned around and he saw Liam. He said, his name is Liam. He's 17. He said, uh, he's too shy to come over here, but I want to thank you for inspiring kids like him. And Dawkins went over there. Oh, fantastic. He went over there to shake his hand. Awesome. So, so I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> great on him, you know, and yeah. great for Liam for, oh, for shaking the man's hand. That says more about the man than any speech he will ever give. Exactly. Don't you think? Exactly. Yeah, so, it does. It really does. So, you know, he could have he just said, yeah, great, and nod or something like that. No, yeah. no, he actually uh, pushed a couple of chairs and went over there to actually shake yeah, the man's that's hand. That's so sweet. That's, yeah, that's why he's doing this, to inspire kids like Liam it to is. carry the torch and to go on and to become interest. That's his legacy. That's because you never know, right? You never know. You I never mean, know. you somewhere 30 years down the road, Liam could be a huge name in atheism. I'm he sure. could very well be. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, he wants to be a neuroscientist and all that. He could be the next Sam Harris, for all we know. Yep. You know, uh, and you know, that could be a moment, a pivotal moment in a young man's life. And it's also, of course, it speaks highly to all of people that go over there in public to these conferences. For sure. It means that, you know, you're willing to expose yourself 
and you're willing to talk to people about it, and you never know who you're going to talk and whose life you're going to change. Yeah, so that was a little story with uh, Richard Dawkins. I love that story. Yeah, it's a great little story. story. It's a great little story. I can't wait till next year when you've got your uh, press tag around your neck. Yes. And you're there there interviewing everybody. With a bit Uh, of luck, I'll be uh, meeting uh, Brian Keith Dalton and uh, AC Grayling and who's the third one? Oh, James Randi. Oh. The amazing Randy is supposed to be there. Oh, get your get your requests well in advance so that yes, you're you're absolutely. definitely the top of the top of the press list. <laughs> I don't see myself as much of a press guy, but oh, hey, yeah. I'm just some schmo with a microphone. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I'm sure Walter Cronkite thought of himself at one point as schmo with a microphone. I but, am you know, not even worthy no, to no, look no. at Walter no, Cronkite. No, think 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 big. Okay, think fair big, enough. Kevin. <laughs> you're inspiring me to Go. think. Oh, yeah, go big or go home, you know. <laughs> speaking of speaking of bigger, we also on the same show had an interview with David Smalley of the Dogma Debate uh, show. So uh, David has got the, uh, got this little clip here of um, he explains how he uses his style of diplomacy uh, when he argues because uh, David is absolutely a diplomat. So let's listen to what that sounds like. It's really you know I, I just saw a lot of a lot of people uh, ruining conversations that could go very very well. And I see sometimes where um, a believer is in the conversation with, with a non-believer, and the believer will say something that the atheist considers completely ridiculous and absurd, and the atheist will say that. Well, that's dumb. Well, that's absurd. Or your Jesus is just Santa Claus for adults. And what I see happen when there's an insult thrown is the believer throws the walls up. They get very defensive. They don't want to continue the conversation. And if they do, it's now a fight because there's been an insult. And what I found much more effective is to ask questions. It's what's known as a Socratic method, much like what what Socrates did. I would ask enough questions, and and let me give you a quick example of how it worked perfectly. I had a a Christian police officer in studio, and we were talking, and he was telling me his ideas and his beliefs, and I was just asking questions. I would say, do you believe the Bible is is the literal word of the Christian God? And he would say yes. And I would say, so there's no mistakes in it. Nope. What if it uh, contradicts science? Well, then science is wrong. The Bible has to be right. Okay, so we went through all these questions. He was answering very predictably as a fundamentalist would. And then we got to the end of it uh, where we were talking about Numbers 22 where Balaam and the donkey have a conversation. And I said, do you believe that a man and a donkey had a conversation? He said, well, yeah. And then so we kept on going and I, I let a little space pro- pro- you know, go in between there. And then I just said, I've got to be honest with you about something. I said, it, it worries me, it concerns me that you carry a gun for a living and have to make split-second logical decisions and you believe that a man and a donkey had a conversation. He laughed at himself and said, well, when you put it that way, I sound ridiculous. So let's think about that. All I did was say back to him what he's already told me. He told me he's a cop. He told me he carries a gun. And he told me he believes a man and a donkey had a conversation. But they never put them together like that in their own, in their own sequence. He has completely separated his work as a police officer from this ridiculous belief. So I ask enough questions and take out all the spaces. And, and I, I put them in a situation of having to face this, this cognitive dissonance that they are so trying desperately to avoid. And so that's really what the questions do. The questions are non-threatening. Um, and then occasionally I have opinions, and I kind of call them on stuff. But the questions are a non-threatening way of get them, getting them to hear 
how absurd the belief is. If I tell them your belief is ridiculous, their automatic response, and if you study anything about uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, conflict resolution, management, team building, or psychology, you're going to understand. You want someone to defend a ridiculous position, attack it. But if you want someone to change their views on it, ask them questions about it. And when they hear themselves sound ridiculous, they will stop themselves from saying it. And they will be much more effective at deconverting themselves than you can ever be by insulting them. Besides that, I don't think there's any precedent of donkeys testifying in cases in Texas, is there? <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> but this is Texas. Don't, uh... Yeah, <laughs> don't count it out. Breath. <laughs> yeah, that was David Smalley. <laughs> and, and it was such an effort for you to finally get him on the show. It you was. Know, the fact that you could pull him out as, as, as an accomplishment, as a clip from 2015. <laughs> he's, he's a busy, busy guy. He and uh, he, he's doing the big things with the uh, uh, secular projects. Uh, he's uh, essentially, what he's doing in, in the States, he's um, producing shows. Like from our friend uh, Daryl Ray with the secular sexuality, so he's he helped Daryl start his own podcast, oh. and he's become a producer. So he, he's developing this umbrella corporation, if you wish, for all everything secular, and of course his show. And he's looking for other shows like that in the states that he's going to sponsor. Resource, yeah. So if we get any better one day, and he goes international, maybe we too will <laughs> fall under this umbrella one day. <laughs> well, that's a there's a goal for us. There we go. That's a goal. Um. Uh, let's see. Uh, yes, after the uh, analyzing uh, INR five with David Smalley, we did a show called Sight See Insight, and this our friend Damien Gillis that came back, and we uh, spoke with him a bit earlier about the uh, liquid natural gas plant, and of course, hand in hand with that was developing Sight See, which has been a project that's been on the books here in BC for what fifty years at least, for a long, long time. So here is a clip of uh, Damien, um, who's uh, ta- who uh, explains. Why he's against the dam? It's every watt of power you produce is going to come at a loss. Dan Potts, the former head of the major power users of BC, this is representing pulp mills and sawmills and major mines and such that, that uh, at one point represent about a third of all the power consumption in BC. He's a very knowledgeable man about energy policy. And he's predicted a $350 million a year loss to taxpayers. So you got the 25 billion bucks that it's going to cost to build the thing and finance it and maintain it over the next 30, 40 years. But add on top of that a $350 million loss in perpetuity because we're going to have excess power that we're going to have to dump on the market at a loss. So when you count, this project has the potential to, I mean, it's comparable or to a significant portion of our entire provincial debt, which is about 70 billion bucks today. So you take that 25 billion and then you, you know, you run that forward 30 years in the future and you've got another $10 billion in losses on this thing. And you're talking about half our entire provincial debt today from a, from a dam that we don't need. And is it for, uh, for our benefit? Is this is the biggest bonehead idea. It's the most expensive capital project in Canadian history. It's by far the biggest thing we've ever taken on in BC in, in the modern era. And this is a government that, despite all its boasts about being the steady hand at the wheel fiscally, et cetera, is, has a terrible track record, far worse than the NDP ever uh, demonstrated in the 90s in their fast ferry fiasco. These guys, if you look at 
uh, major capital projects from the Northwest Transmission Line, which is three times over budget almost. Uh, the stadium roof was five times the original stated budget. The convention center in Vancouver was double the initial budget. The Portman Bridge and Highway 20 ended up being about f- over 500, 550% of the initial numbers that they had thrown out when they got people interested in the project. This government can't manage its way out of a wet paper bag. And now we're going to trust them with it with a $9 billion project on paper, I'm already calling it 12 because the average cost overrun of dams around the world, according to the World Bank, is 27%. And these guys are at the very bottom of the barrel in terms of fiscal management. So you've got to think this is going to go way worse than that. <laughs> yeah, so that was Damien. Why don't you tell us what you really feel, Damien? Yeah, that was exactly. That was great minds are are on a single pathway. I, I, I but I really love it when people are plain speaking and yes. tell you exactly yes. what they think so that you can deal with it honestly out in the open. Yeah, uh, he, for he, he it or was, against it, that's that's where I stand. He was not holding any punches, no. and I totally love that about Damien. He's a great yeah. guy to talk to, and uh, we'll certainly have more of him. Uh, in upcoming shows, but it's going to be interesting to keep an eye out because right now they're trying to push that uh, that dam ahead. Yeah, and you know, a, a lot of people don't realize something about dams. Yeah, they're way more green than uh, than doing a coal power plant for sure. But all that stagnant water behind uh, a dam that's held there, everything decomposes there. It's stagnant, so it creates a lot of methane, which is uh, a, a green. Uh, greenhouse gas so they're not quite as green as people think they are they're better than the coal power plant for sure but well that's just that's to me that's a, 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 a an, another reassurance that you have to treat the people you, you have to go with the people who know the science because there are so many mistakes that are made when they when people overlook the, the, the factor of stagnancy. I mean, you can you can look at um, a, a lot of the, you can look at the economics. You can look at this. You can look at that. But unless you take that into account, it's all going to go downhill really really fast. Yes. So, and if you don't understand that part of it, and unfortunately, a lot of politicians don't understand the science of it, and so they make these huge overrun mistakes because they didn't count on. Um, the effects of uh, of the science, science, scientific um, mm-hmm. boy, am I ever getting garbled? They, they, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, they they really didn't understand what they were dealing with scientifically. Exactly. There we go. Exactly. I think I I think I pulled myself out of there, but I'm not quite sure. I think Fair I still. Got, I think you did right. I think I still Good got job. a foot Good in job. my <laughs> mouth. But, <laughs> Our next clip was about a uh, when we, we I pulled that show about uh, when we did an interview with Lawrence Krauss. Oh yeah. It also happens to be. A favorite for our friend the reform out of Chilliwack. Uh, this is a Lawrence Krauss was a gracious. We we caught up with him at Imaginal Religion as well. He was gracious enough to explain how we should teach science to kids. So let's listen in. How would you encourage the younger generation to be more enthusiastic about science? I'd hold it over. Oh no, it doesn't matter. Um, okay. uh, I, I let's see. Um, I think that what you, you make it cool, you make it fun. You don't. You don't, first of all, let me make it clear. The younger generation is already enthusiastic about science when it comes to being really young. All kids are born scientists. So what we do is we beat it out of them. And we just got to stop beating it out of them. We got to have, have teachers who are comfortable teaching science so that kids can learn it's not something to be uncomfortable about. We got to have, and, and 
and they can, in, and in particular, we can encourage them to ask questions rather than have answers. So the more important thing in education is to get teachers encouraging kids to ask questions and to, and to ask questions themselves and say, let's figure out how to answer it. And finally, we should be really enthusiastic about saying, I don't know. Instead of convincing kids that it's all known and it's something you have to memorize, but it's, we don't know it and they might be able to discover how to do it. Okay? Jimmy, you had a question? Yeah, just in in, uh, in relation to that, I did watch Richard Dawkins a couple of years ago on some YouTube video had said that uh, in response to Feynman's quote of science or physics at, at, at any rate is, uh, you know, harder for, than we can imagine that that quote but he had indicated that there may be a way to start with children very young with video games and showing them different ways to get them kind of more more comfortable more comfortable with it and with just the idea of it so that it wasn't such a hard thing to grasp it's true that the that the younger we we present kids with things the more intuitively comfortable they are with it which is by the way and I wasn't being facetious, I really think it's important. We make a mistake in schools in teaching science in the order of biology, chemistry, then physics. Because we, some people think that people are, are more comfortable with biology because it's frogs and things like that. And physics is, is, is further away. But the problem is it, it, it teaches science the wrong way around. Because, as I said, the principles of, of biology are based on chemistry. The principles of chemistry are based on physics. So when you learn it in biology, it appears as a bunch of facts. And that's not science. And yeah, so that was, I think, uh, I think uh, Lawrence Kramer made a very, very good point there about how you teach. It's true. We teach that in, in, in science class. We'll teach biology because kids can handle a dissecting frog or something like that. But it's it, we're, we're, we're regressing because after that, you have to start learning chemistry and then you have to start learning physics, which it should really be the other way around. I think he makes an excellent point. He does, and I think a, a lot of kids, as he facetiously said, um, all kids are born scientists and then it's beaten out of them. And it's discouraged out of them as well. So it totally is. You know, children who begin to to question and, and do little experiments, you know, and then are told, no, that's messy, no, you can't, you know, um, that's not anything we're doing in school right now, or the parents don't understand how to go about helping a kid that likes to experiment. So by the time they get to third or fourth grade, they're apprehensive mm-hmm. now about about science and asking questions or doing experiments. So that needs to be built built back in with a sense of wonder. Could, could, can we say maybe there's too much emphasis on the uh, the three R's: reading, writing, and arithmetic? Um, Should we put like a, a three R and an S in there? <laughs> I, I, no, I I I, th- I think I don't think there's more of an emphasis on it. I think what it is is that teachers are comfortable teaching that part of it, and many of them are don't understand how to be creative to go out of the box of the three R's and bring in. Um, topics of um, of science because they haven't been well grounded in it either. They don't understand it and they're afraid that they can't answer all the questions and afraid of saying, well, I don't know, let's learn together. So I think maybe... I think think the educators have to be um, taught a little bit differently, you know, when they get their degrees in education. I think they have to be taught a little bit differently. Maybe there's also the idea that, you know, when you um, when you're teaching English, the rules are there; they don't change. However, when you're right. teaching science, there could be new discoveries and all of a sudden things that you 
thought you knew will have to be discarded. And maybe that maybe that's when you're forming a curriculum, you'd rather go with something proven and true forever. Yeah. That's not going to change, right? That, that's possibly true. I think yeah. as, as long as we're as, as long as we're sort of on the subject, I think women definitely need to be in, encouraged. And when women are in science, they need to be given the credit because a lot of times they do the work and whoever the head of the team is, he will get the get the credit or we don't really girls don't have yeah. the mentors that they that they need in, in order to to pursue science careers all right well we're almost there nancy we're almost there, we're getting there. <laughs> after that somewhere in august we actually uh, it was a uh, election time in canada and we met wyatt scott we did wyatt scott and uh, we've become friends ever since and Wyatt will appear uh, this year in a show that we're going to do called uh, the science of magic and uh, we're setting that, uh, this up right now as we speak. Um, Wyatt, at the time, was running for Member of Parliament. And he came up with this wonderful little video. Yes, it was terrific. So, <laughs> And it, it counts as one of your favorite moments. It does. And uh, we have a little chat here with Wyatt about the video. And also, Dan was with us. So let's listen in. I mean, it blends... It's spot on with all of the elements, the the visuals, what you're saying, the points that you made, everything packed into, you know, such a small space. It's, it is an attention grabber, and you can't forget it once you see it. It does stick with you, which is, you know, hopefully, you know, what, what you planned to begin with. But it is. It's absolutely brilliant. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. you. Did you write the script? Or absolutely. Yeah. We, uh, we really? yeah, the campaign, we worked on the script, and... Obviously, uh, the attention span of human beings nowadays isn't quite what it was 50 years ago. So, what was that? Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, uh, we could do the movie. movie. We were talking about the movie. That's yeah. Right. All right. Um, so, yeah, we we wanted to put in some of our message in there, and uh, the visual was to keep the attention. And I think we we definitely succeeded at uh, getting. Well, I think you more than succeeded. <laughs> Actually, just, just while we're on that subject, um, you were telling us earlier before the podcast about some of the media attention you'd received. Maybe you can talk about that for a minute. Okay. Uh, so it was it was a Tuesday morning, and I was uh, I just jumped in, in the van, and I was heading to Chilliwack. Um, to, uh, I was going out to Chilliwack to pick up something, 5.45 a.m., and I had NW on, and Sean Leslie was in for John McComb. And he was going on and on and on about this video and um, wasn't getting a lot of news out. And then I think it was Mike Smith, the Victoria analyst, came on and they were talking back and forth. Back And then he, he said, go check out this video. you got to watch it right now. And um, Mike said to Sean, well, what's the name? And he said, my name. And I was kind of, whoa, it was kind of surreal. Mm-hmm. And um, pretty much about 15 minutes after I heard that on NW, my phone started ringing. And it didn't stop ringing. Um, that wow. week, I think we were at a thousand views. That Tuesday morning, by Saturday evening that week, it was over a million views. And in between that Tuesday and Saturday, I think I probably did about thirty-five interviews, various interviews. Um, was on most major political talk shows in the United States. They played it on Jimmy Kimmel Live that week, uh, a bunch of other talk shows. I was on uh, Chris Matthews' Hardball, um, you know, Fox, uh, and then, of course, all the Canadian ones, CBC, CTV, and Global. It was, uh, it was a whirlwind week, to say the least. 
That is really good. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, so there was White. Um, as the uh, campaign progressed and the election came, um, he was doing actually very, very well. He was. He was polling very well in, in, in his district. Um, and actually, it looked like he had a very good chance of going in. He was not elected. Um, a couple of weeks before the uh, the October 19th, it looked like the NDP was going in. And he was polling very well. And then all of a sudden, the red tide of the liberals came and washed everything away, including yeah. our friend White. Yeah, but that's all right. I mean, he got his feet wet. He totally People did. got to know him. Um, he's He made a, a, a foundation yes. from which to build. Yes, and a, a strong one. And Wyatt is, uh, I admire the guy because he is very driven and he will become a politician. He absolutely has that as a goal. He will run again. And he, he said to me, he says, I will run till I get in there. <laughs> uh, because he really he wants too. he wants to change things around, yeah. and he's very he's a very charming guy, and uh, he's he's become a good friend. So uh, we're looking forward to uh, hearing from him again. Good, and we will definitely keep an eye on his on his career on his and political follow career. it along yeah, with right. great enthusiasm. That's right. Um, after that, we finally did a show with an interview with Matt Dillahunty. Now, Matt Dillahunty, I interviewed uh, around the same time that we did the interview on Imaginal Religion. There was just, uh, we had to go upstairs and there was a, a, a lengthy interview, but there was like sound problems and I had to edit a lot of it. But eventually we did cut it down to a manageable piece of uh, interview and we had managed to uh, play an interview that uh, of the Matt we all love. So here is a clip about Matt, who exp- he explained how he became a good debater. Well, you've probably become probably one of the best debaters since Hitchens. And uh, what drives you to be such a great master debater? <laughs> yeah, master, master debater. Uh, I don't even know that that's true, but I'll take the compliment. The, the big thing is I actually am arrogant enough that I want to change the world and think that I might be able to contribute something in some way. I, you know, I was a fundamentalist Christian for more than 25 years. I was going to be a preacher. And when I found my way out, um, it wasn't that I had, you know, some epiphany and felt an urge to share with everybody. It was more of a recognition of now I'm actually a humanist. I care about what kind of world I live in and what kind of world I leave behind. And I want to have the conversations with people. So it's not so much that I've got a foregone conclusion that they're all wrong. So far, they have been unconvincing. But, you know, when I want to have the conversations about, you know, why do you believe this? You know, I, I know kind of why I believed, but my reason may be very different from somebody else's. If it turns out the whole God thing was true and that a believer had really good reasons for it, uh, I'd want to know that. You know, I mean, it would be, be worth knowing. And if it's not, and if it turns out that, like me, they also had bad reasons, I'd like to explain why I don't believe, maybe encourage them to evaluate why they believe and reconsider. And so far, between the TV show and the debates, um, it's worked really well. I've got thousands of emails from people who have either left religion or now identify as atheist or now identify as skeptic or we can pick a label. Uh, but And it's not, you know, it's not just me doing it. There's a whole bunch of people involved with our show. There's a bunch of other YouTube uh, activists. There are a lot of people doing debates. And I do it because it works. I mean, I, I had a 13-year-old girl come up to me after one debate, and you know, her parents had exposed her to as much religious ideas as, as she wanted. And she said, you know, after this debate, I identify as an atheist. And even if that was the only affirmation I'd ever gotten, it would have been worth it to do all those debates just to kind of help one person. But it's, it's not the only. I mean, people are changing. I changed my mind. 
when I go out and speak to groups, though, you know, I'll frequently ask, you know, how many people used to be religious? Yep. You know, my friend Keith Lowell Jensen, who's a brilliant comedian, does that in some of his acts. And he's like, you know, people say, oh, why do you waste time talking to religious people? It's a waste of time. Raise your hand if you used to be religious. Raise your hand if somebody else had any impact in you finding your way out of it. I think we were worth talking to, and I completely agree with him. Absolutely. Yeah, anyway. Okay, so selectivism. So what do we mean by selectivism? Because this is kind of a pet peeve of mine, so... I'm going to have to cut that out. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so that was a clip of Matt Dillahunty. Matt, of course, you know... Probably one of the best debaters, like I said there. <laughs> yeah, well, he said. Kind of called myself when I said, "You become such a master debater." That sounded so bad. <laughs> no, it's, <laughs> it's but but that, that uh, unfortunately the sound part of that, but the the idea was good. <laughs> you were on the right track there. I was on the yeah. right track, so yeah. hopefully we'll get to talk to him again uh, soon. Uh, he's still doing tours. He's doing that full time now, so he's still going around and doing that stuff. The next show after that, we did a bonus show, and it was called A Skeptical Look at Alzheimer's. And this is where we were introduced to uh, one of our newest members, Connie. That's right. Connie works uh, usually for uh, for an investment firm, but she's also very big into Alzheimer's, and she does a lot of fundraising for them. So here I have a clip featuring Connie uh, explaining Alzheimer's disease. And again, the same things will happen where you could be walking down the street and you're going around doing your everyday thing and you forget why you're here. Where are you going? Where did I park the car? And you'll be stuck in the middle of traffic and not know what you're doing. And that, again, is a sign of early onset Alzheimer's. And it's it's early 40s. And uh, if it's found at that age, um, unfortunately, the life expectancy is a lot shorter. Goodness. So it's uh, we have to keep our brain functioning well exercise it yes and you're looking at me while saying that of course of course of course you know we're in the same age group Um, i get get no respect here no no that's because you're such a good example (laughs) we need somebody to turn to and you're the obvious choice my line of vision um it could be just a simple thing you know if if you're worried about uh early onset uh you could be having a conversation and you're looking for that word and I mean, it happens to me quite often, but I think it's just it's just stress. It's not a sign of onset, but you're you're thinking of a word that you've used many times in a sentence, and it disappears. You got words disappearing in, in the middle of a sentence? I have had that. I've had that. What's up with that? <laughs> you're so mean. <laughs> so mean. That was for the first jab. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> So that was a clip with Connie. <laughs> no, that's great. And I'm, I'm glad that you bring to the show things that are informative. It's like having Tanya on and having uh, Connie on. They cover topics that uh, people um, don't know enough about, mm-hmm. um, or they're so involved in politics and religion that they, they overlook the things of uh, in life that they need to know a little bit more about and, and be aware of. It, well, uh, well, the show was never strictly the show was never strictly about just atheism, right? I, I wanted to do an episode on atheism and then do a, a skeptical episode and then do a humanish episode, and we try to keep to that as much as possible. Of course, when stuff happens like like the the, the shooting in Paris or something like that, then you do kind oh, of a, yeah, absolutely a bonus show and you, you go back to your schedule. But you know, there's so many subjects out there we can bring to people so coming in october we had our halloween episode 
Ghost in the Valley. Now, I didn't do a clip on one of the ghost stories that we did, which was a fun show, by the way. It was. It was. It was like sitting around the campfire with our s'mores. It totally was. (laughs) We told some nice, nice classic stories. But I pulled a clip, and this is probably another one of my favorite moments, is a a story of... you seem to be featuring all my favorite moments, Nancy. <laughs> it's the story where it's you... It's history. It's yes. history. It's that uh, moment where you do your segment at This Day in History where you tell the story of the first woman going over, over Niagara Falls. Oh, Let's right. listen to that. She was the first woman to wow. go. She was. And um, she decided that she wanted to do this so that maybe she could make some money and avoid the poorhouse. So she actually, she was the first person, not only the first woman, but the first person. So... Um, before she went down and they they had a custom made barrel, they sent a cat over. <laughs> they sent a cat <laughs> and, this is, and this isn't even a baseball story, Kevin. <laughs> They sent sent the cat over. That that is the worst nightmare for a cat I can imagine. But he went over in her barrels to see whether or not. Over a waterfall for a cat. So the cat made it. Believe it or not. So the cat made it. So Andy said, okay, the cat made it. It's my turn. So they brought her out there, and she had a lucky heart-shaped pillow that she brought with her. They pumped all the air out of the um, out of the, the barrel so that she wouldn't roll around in there, um, plugged the hole up with a cork, and off she went right near Goat Island. And the currents carried her over the, the uh, Canadian side of Horseshoe Falls, and that's... It's since been the site of all of the daredevil stunting at Niagara Falls. So they reached her barrel shortly after the plunge, and she was alive, relatively uninjured, except for a tiny gash. And the trip took um, about 20 minutes, but it was some time before they actually got to her. So she earned a lot of money about her experience and never was able to build, you know, a lot of wealth. And here's, again, another funny twist that her manager ran away with the barrel. <laughs> and most of, her, most of her savings were used for a private detective to try to find it. So they eventually found it in Chicago, but then it disappeared again. So she uh, had, you know, she went downhill, really. I, mean, <laughs> I just realized what I said. She went down. <laughs> downstream, downstream. Downstream. She went downstream. Thank you. She went downstream really quick. But uh, she attempted to write a novel and so forth and so on. But she died at age 82. And believe it or not, she is interred in the stunters section of Oakwood Cemetery in Niagara Falls. Did you know there was a stunters section? No, but it kind of makes sense all of a sudden. You know, with all the stunts they've had over Niagara Falls, yeah. why wouldn't they have a... They have a stunters section. I don't know how many died later in life and how many actually died in the attempt. But anyway, we, you know, poor, poor, poor Annie. She really did the best she could, you know, <laughs> but uh, never, never got the fame and, and fortune that she wanted. <laughs> Downhill, downhill downstream. With <laughs> it's just beautiful. Oh, Another man. great, brilliant moment brought to you by Nancy. I know. 
history. <laughs> you know, there's so so many of these wonderful gems that are overlooked when Absolutely. when teachers teach history to kids. And I'm convinced, going back to talk about educators, if if the the history teachers would bring out more of these events, I think kids would enjoy history a little bit more because they'd so. be tempted to look to look to see. Oh, we're you know, it's it's funny. It's not just the war. Yeah. The war and, instead of and saying what, you know 1812 there was this war and, and just memorizing numbers, exactly. bring, make it alive. You know, make it yeah. It, it does things come alive because you you get the, the 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 people, the personalities, the times, the event. Everything comes together in these funny little stories. In, in that same show, I didn't I didn't put a clip of this, but there's also I was very tempted to do so. That same show is where Connie had her daughters here. Uh, Savannah and Sam, and, and and she looked at Sam, who was the youngest one, and said, "You know, Sam, are you going to want to, you know, am I going to have to rock you to sleep?" Yeah. And then, of course, you just chimed in and said, "With a real rock, yeah. because it's Halloween and you're just Nancy." And it was just brilliant. It was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. <laughs> After Halloween in November, we had another attack on Paris. So we did a show on Paris versus ISIS, and uh, we actually had a uh, uh, we we brought in uh, John Welsh and his brother Dave came in as well as our old friend Jim. But before that, there was this there's this clip of you I wanted to pull out. Uh, I didn't pull out the whole thing because you went into your story with the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Oh yeah. So let's listen to you talk about that. My husband at the time was a radio announcer and worked for a station, which was a radio station, a TV station, in, uh, it was right between Dallas and, and Fort Worth, um, called WBAP, and it was the NBC affiliate. He had the day off, so he took care of the three children. And I went Christmas shopping, and I had an item that I wanted to get that was on the other side of Fort Worth. We lived between Dallas and Fort Worth. So he took care of the kids. I headed off to a pawn shop, which happened to be, and I really didn't realize it when I set off, but it was on the route that Kennedy and his party were going to take to go from downtown Fort Worth to Carswell Air Force Base to get on the plane for a 15... Hold on a second. Go Hold ahead. on a second. Okay. Are you telling me you do your shopping, your Christmas shopping at pawn shops? It, I did. <laughs> I did a pawn shop because my husband wanted... I know. Because my husband... <laughs> I just really wanted to press that. I no. know. <laughs> I don't believe you. Can I give an excuse? <laughs> my husband wanted a banjo because he was a musician, and I had called all over, and the banjo he wanted was at the pawn. Am I redeemed a little bit? Because <laughs> it was yes. a musical instrument? Yeah. Okay, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah I wish I had that banjo sound effect right now. You're yeah, redeemed yeah. because, you know, most uh, instruments at pawn shops, you know, are probably stolen from musicians or by musicians that have gone <laughs> bankrupt. <laughs> <laughs> so I went, on, I went after the stolen banjo... <laughs> And I was right on the route going to Carswell because in those days they didn't have the freeways because you can get to downtown Dallas to downtown Fort Worth now in about 30 minutes, but then it would take almost an hour. Besides, you know, he had a chance to use the military and it was more secure. So <clears throat> when I got out of the, the pawn shop, there were um, crowds on, on either side. And 
I, I suddenly realized where I was and who was coming, and I thought, oh, my gosh. And so I stood there, and there this convertible came by, and there was Jack Kennedy, wow. and I know, and Jacqueline Kennedy in this beautiful pink suit that you've seen in all the pictures with the little hat. And, of course, they turned, and you could say they looked straight at me, but, you know, looking at the crowd. And my hand just went up involuntarily, and I went, oh, my gosh gosh you know and it was just thrilling to be able to see them so I headed out from the pawn shop did a little grocery shopping and got home about an hour and a half later something like that and as I walked in the front door my children were running toward me saying mommy 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 the president's been shot the president's been shot yeah, that was a hell of a clip about history right there. It is. And every time, I don't tell that story in public very often, but every time I tell it, it's it actually is, is like being a movie because I can see every bit of that, you know, in, in my mind. I can see the banjo. You can see the banjo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, by the way, and, and he ended up playing that playing that banjo too, like dueling, dueling banjos. The Deliverance was the name of the film we were trying That's to think of right. at the beginning. There we go. Yeah, it was a, it was a well-used, well-used banjo. It was worth, <laughs> it was worth the trip for the banjo and, <laughs> and to see Kennedy. A moment in history, for sure. Yeah. Well, in the same show, of course, uh, we have another clip. Uh, this is a clip of Jim, our friend Jim, who's explaining child soldiers uh, with uh, our friend John Welsh. The ancient Vikings used to do, they, when they wanted to train a warrior, uh, they would give him a slave to kill to an oh. eight-year-old boy or a nine-year-old boy. And if you look at the number of the uh, uh, videos that they have released, mm. you're, talking, you're looking at seven, eight, nine-year-old boys uh, killing Syrian soldiers who were captive. Oh, uh, so they actually train them at a very young age to kill. Yeah, you see them even younger. I've seen it's like the, the child soldiers in Africa. Well, it's, it's, even worse, exactly talking it's even worse than that because you see video, plenty of videos out there on social media of kids. I mean, you're talking about like three-year-old and he's practicing beheading his stuffed teddy bear. I mean... Yeah, mom, we're, I'm talking about the killing of uh, like man, a grown-up man, yeah. and, they, and they do that with, uh, with relish and pleasure. And... And uh, so what they do, uh, so with a guy who has been, who has that kind of training, who has, who has been killing at a very young age for, and regularly. So what do you want to do that? Do you want to like, uh, okay, you're not forgiven, come and join our society or come and go and have a life? No, that's the only, the only way to deal with that kind of uh, threat uh, is eradicated. Yeah, that was Jim. Uh, Jim is, uh, he's not, you know, mumbling his words when he talks about ISIS. He actually thinks that we should eliminate ISIS altogether. He says there is no re-education for these people. He says he, so he, his his solution to ISIS is, uh, I'm not sure if I agree with him completely, but his he thinks that just like a gangrenous part of your body should just be cut off and eliminated, right? Oh, you can you can hear the passion and the point of view uh, every time he, he speaks. And he comes from a part of the world where he's learned this at an early age. He's seen it. He's lived through it. Yes. And so I can understand, you know, where, where his perspective comes on a little stronger than, than ours does, which is really pretty intellectual, you know, yeah. from reading and seeing films. But he's lived through a 
lot of this. Exactly. So it, it's interesting because um, most people that are, for lack of a better word, harsh like that towards uh, is- Islamist are in the camp of uh, Ayan or Ali and all that. And, you know, they're, they're, they're not just fighting the harshness of uh, Islamic fundamentalism. They're also facing the backlash of the politically correct movement. Yeah. And that is going to be an interesting topic that we will talk about in the new year with our friend Peter Bogosian. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, that's great. Our last clip at the end of the show, because we're not going to do a clip on the Christmas show, but because it's just a last show. Just go download it. It was a good show, too. Uh, is our, our old friend Del Rey, Dr. Del Rey, and we did a show on the myth of sexual addiction. Now, the genesis of that show was I was speaking to a Christian friend, and he was claiming that he was a sexual addict. And it's by coming to God that he uh, got rid of that. And I thought, well, that just doesn't sound right. And according to Dr. Del Rey, that's not right either. So here's a clip. It also happens to be the favorite for our friend Sarah. Uh, Here is Dr. Del Rey. And what we see is what I call the Oprah effect. Oprah believes it. Dr. Drew believes it. So they start talking about it. And and everybody starts saying, well, Oprah said it was a real thing, so it must be. Mm -hmm. No self-respecting psychologist or psychiatrist will diagnose. And here's the real proof in the pudding. I mean, follow the money. It's, that's an important concept. Yeah. Follow the money. If your insurance company won't pay for it, it's probably not a real thing. Go to, the, go to your doctor and, get, and find somebody that will diagnose you as a sex addict. And then call up the insurance company and say, will you reimburse my psychiatrist or my psychologist <laughs> for sex addiction treatment? And they'll laugh at you. <laughs> Insurance companies will not pay for something that doesn't have a very clear scientific diagnosis. What, here, and here's the scam, and it's really a scam. It's a terrible scam on families, and they're usually very religious families. They, have a, they catch their kid masturbating, or they catch their underage kids having sex. Well, hell, I had sex when I was underage. A lot of kids have sex when they're underage, but they catch them, and because they've got this incredible religious guilt, they say, you must be a sex addict. The preacher says you're a sex addict. Uh, The Christian counselor says you're a sex addict. And they send these kids off to treatment centers in Utah. The Mormons have lots of treatment centers. The Baptists have them too. It's, you know, the highly religious areas seem to have these treatment centers for sex addiction. And they get the kid in or the adult. It can be a a Josh Duggar. (laughs) I mean, Josh Duggar is a sex addict, according to his, uh, his wife and his family. So you send him off to these treatment centers, and they can't, they can't bill the insurance companies for the treatment. What they can tr- bill the insurance company is for medication or for psychiatric evaluation or psychological evaluation, but they can't bill for the treatment because the treatment is – there's no such thing. You can't treat something that doesn't exist. Interesting. So, so at the end of a 10-day treat, uh, session, a 10-day residency or a 30-day residency in one of these treatment centers, the, the parents get the bill for this kid, and $1,000 of it is paid by the insurance because it was for meds or psychi- psychiatric evaluation, and $15,000 of it can't be billed. So the family is left with $15,000 worth of bills. So that was Dr. Del Rey. So now we find out that... Sexual addiction is nothing but a scam. Yeah, and and that goes to what we were we were talking about when you introduced the the, the topic that the the there is 
un, the the people who participate in this are practicing un, it's unethical for them to do this and yet because the money is there and because the guilt is there allowing the money to to flow into their pockets they they continue with mm-hmm. it exactly exactly it's it 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 uh, illustrates that uh, saying that you know they sell you the disease sin and then they sell you the cure oh there were, what i'm trying to think uh, just slightly off topic there was a a drug that was marketed on us tv i don't know whether it ever made it up here but it was um you know, an ad for a um, a for a a socially awkward um, um, problem. It it had to do with people who were extremely shy, and it made it seem as though uh, a lot of these people had an an aversion to dealing with people, and that was a, a psychological condition that could be helped through medication. And they absolutely invented the um, the psychological problem and then said, here's the pill that will that will cure it. It was just totally, totally backwards and unethical. But the, the ad ran for about a year really? before they took it off the market. Don't yeah. we have alcohol for that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, Jim the Jim B makers ought to be able to get in on a little of that other than the pills, but I I I know it's not going to come to your mind because I don't I don't think you saw the ad, but it it ran and ran and ran so that it made people who feel as though they're just a little bit shy in in large crowds, it really made them think, oh, gosh, maybe I really have an anxiety disorder, and if I took some meds, I'd be friendlier and, and be able to cope more with uh, with hmm. people in public. Is there, a spe- is there a specific clip during the year you, uh, you preferred? or? Oh, I think you covered. You I think covered we covered all, all the bases. Huh? Yeah. Well, i got to say, though, my favorite part is being able to share this moment with you, of course, Nancy. And oh, all same here. Stars. Same here. I'm looking forward. <laughs> we, had a, we had a good time. We learned a lot. And uh, now here comes 2016, and it'll be through before we realize it if it goes like the last year did. Exactly. All right, here's my rant. Last year, we started the year strong with an interview with Arn Raw, and if you remember my rant, I hated you all to try just one different thing. It's amazing how the vast majority of us go on every day in a routine we simply detest, and then come to some dull resolution in a vain attempt to change our lives. Why do we do this? Why do we complain year after year about the state of a world, resolve ourselves to change, and then hastily give up at the first sign of hardship? 2015 was a year of change for us. We saw a change in our staff. We saw a change in government. We saw a change in attitudes in the population. Was there a change in your life? Did you try to better your life, one little step at a time? Or did you just give up like the vast majority of us? Stats show that already most of us have given up on promises we make for ourselves. But it's not too late. Give it a shot. Go ahead. Try that new class you've been thinking about. Go on that adventure you always wanted to experience. As atheists, we feel that life isn't just a welcome mat to wipe your boots on before stepping into the golden mansion of the afterlife. The existence, as brief as it is, is the only one that we know of, and we have no reason to believe that there is a reward waiting for us beyond death. So count yourself lucky to have participated in this life. Of the billion of possibilities, you are here. And just because life can be hard, doesn't mean that you have to let it bowl you over. 
There are things you can change in your life to make it better. Why not do it? One baby step at a time. Make sure 2016 isn't a repeat of 2015. Just make it better. And that takes us to the end of our show. It certainly does. Thank you so much to my partner in crime, Nancy. My pleasure. It's always a pleasure having you here. Um, coming up in the year, because we got a lot of things that are going to be happening during the year, uh, we're going to be... Uh, oh, where's that board? Okay, we're going to be talking to Jeff D. of the, uh, the uh, non-profit podcast. We're also going to be, uh, our next show is going to be with Ian Bushfield. And I got to apologize to Ian because, you know, I've been calling him Ian Bushfield and it's actually Bushfield. <laughs> I'm going to have to apologize to him in person too. Uh, we're going to have Peter Bogosian coming on. We're going to be talking to also a member of the uh, Center for Inquiry. And we will also have a show on the science of magic. Looking forward to that one. So until next time, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening. Take care. Bye-bye. Such power.